Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, Greg Vellier joins us with AFG. I'll note that everybody in Washington reads each and every morning. And Greg, I do want to talk about something we've really avoided this morning. As John Farrell mentions, we get right to work. And part of that work is impeachment. What will we see this Wednesday and Thursday on impeachment? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Good morning. You know, everybody talks about unity, and I know it's going to be a big theme for Joe Biden, but we have an impeachment trial coming up that I think will be bitter. I think it'll drag on for two or three weeks. I think they probably will fail. I think it could make uh, Donald Trump look like a martyr. I think it'll complicate Joe Biden's agenda. So right away, after talking about unity, we get that. And I would just also add, Tom, the uh, Janet Yellen hearing yesterday was not that unified. The Republicans pushed back hard on new spending. Yeah. Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go, this idea that we talk about unity, and yet we have these divisions that are getting just deeper. Do you feel momentum behind this $1.9 trillion plan, or do you think this is going to drag out for months far longer than the market is pricing in? I think there's momentum behind a plan. I'm not sure it's this plan that has a lot of money for state and local governments, for minimum wage. I think we'll get something, but I don't think it'll be $1.9 trillion. I think we could get a deal by the end of February, but the Republicans really showed their hand yesterday that they don't want anything this expensive. $1.9 trillion is the number. What do you think it comes down to, Greg? Well, I've been saying something around one five. I think maybe one four, one five. I think that is uh, is doable. Uh, the, the Democrats have to hold on to every one of their fifty senators, and I'm not convinced, John, that they've got all fifty. They might have forty eight. They might have forty nine. So the, the, this will, I think, boil down to negotiations between Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell. Greg Vallier with us with AGF, and he will stay with us at this moment. Greg Vallier, so much of this, and we just talked to Whit Ayers, the post pollster for conservative at Republicans. Is Republicans acting fast to get ready for 2022 primaries? What would you expect to see from conservative Southern Republicans? Well, it is amazing, isn't it, Tom, that we're already talking about 2022, yes. but that's Washington. So a couple of points I'd make. Number one, I do think that the Republicans will hit hard on the issue of taxes and spending. Uh, I think the country doesn't want big new taxes. I think that's going to be a potent uh, argument uh, for them. Uh, so I, I think that the other point I'd make is that historically, a first-term president in his first midterm election loses about 5% of House and Senate seats. If Biden were to lose 5% of House and Senate seats, he'd lose both houses. Greg, I want you to talk about the silence of Mr. Hoover and Mr. Roosevelt long ago and far away in the early days of the Depression. Without question, the quietest car ride in the history of our presidents. With all your perspective, Greg Vallier, is Mr. Trump setting precedents here that we may see in the future? Or in your opinion, is this a one-off of discord? I think it's a one-off. I think most politicians, right or left, respect tradition. You know, Trump doesn't. He stirred the pot. I mean, that's Donald Trump. He didn't respect a lot of the norms. But I think as we go into other elections, there will be more conciliation. 
Greg, when we talk about the uh, the presidency of, of Trump, it was one that was anti-establishment. It was anti-Washington. Mm-hmm. That was the, the goal of his, taking out some of the career members of the cabinet of the various departments and putting in his own people. What do you think the legacy of that will be as Joe Biden comes in and tries to reverse that? Well, you know, it's one thing to blow things up. I, I get it that there are certain institutions that haven't worked well and you want to blow them up, but you have to have something to replace them with. And he would blow things up without any alternative, and I think that got uh, tiresome. I also think the level of personal uh, rancor, the vindictiveness, the ugliness of his tweets really yeah. distinguished him and, and really diminished his cause. John, I think the British do this better. You lose the election, what do you do? You leave in like three hours with a set of cardboard boxes. You move out the they, next day. You move out the next Downing day. And Street I do better. think the events of the last few months, Tom, really expose some vulnerability in that process. A process, of course, established for good reason many years ago. But I wonder, Greg, just as a final question to you, sir, whether that's something that people will rethink, will need to rethink, whether you think we should rethink that. Well, I think there were things that Trump did that were positive. Uh, Getting tough with China, I think everybody would agree on. I think uh, having fewer regulations, people would agree on. It was the way he did it. The way he did it was was so over-the-top and outrageous that it hurt his cause. Greg Vallier, thank you so much for joining us on the day of inauguration. And to all of us, thank you for your uh, perspective across this historic uh, campaign. Right now, with futures up 17 and Dow futures up 68, it is a market that is voting on prosperity for the haves, voting for the prosperity of those that participate in the markets. Alicia Levine is a wonderful student of this. She's at BNY Mellon with acute mathematics and a really, really sharp set of critical thinking skills to get us through 2021. Alicia, have you amended your view forward of the events of the last 30 days. Yeah, good morning. Good morning, Dream Team. Your coverage has been really wonderful this morning, really enjoying it. Um, yes, we have. So we the way we've amended it is to say that we think that for markets, the cyclical trade has legs. It's deepened and that the name of the game is rotation here. And we think that because, we, as you can see, the stimulus is going to be enormous. The initial proposal put forth by the incoming Biden administration is double the size that Wall Street was really expecting. And direct checks to households are already being spent. We saw the December direct checks coming into households the first 12 days of the year on the order of $130 billion. And those people who receive direct checks have already increased their credit card spending by 20% in the first week of January alone. So what does that mean? This, This economy, is 70% consumption. And whether households are saving the checks or spending them, GDP will be going higher. And with that, the sectors that are levered to the cyclical recovery will move higher as well. And this trade will have legs. Alicia, where is that money being spent? So it's interesting. So the households that are spending it tend to be households that earn $50,000 or less. And it's being spent on things like clothing and, and food. And, and housing. 
Um, the households that are spending it tend to be the wealthier households. And that's why we think the second half of the year, when services can come back online in a more meaningful way and in a more regular way because of the dissemination of vaccine, those households right now have an extra $1.4 trillion to spend in savings. And that pent up demand is going to meet that savings. It's going to get higher with increased checks to households. It's going to be enormous spending in this country. I think the boom is coming. So how quickly could that spending drop off if we don't get some sort of additional fiscal stimulus passed in the upcoming two, three months? So the bill that was passed in December was really meant to get us through the end of March because the unemployment benefits expire and the extra $300 a week expires at the end of March. And the checks really are of the amount to get households through the end of March. So the Biden plan is, is another bridge, right? And, and that's really to look forward, get households um, equalized here and how they can handle the further scourge of the pandemic getting us through into June and July. This is a lot of money, folks. It's very hard to overstate how much money is being spent on rescue here. And this is one reason why a lot of people are expecting inflation to pick up as the year goes on. This is one of the big conundrums, though. Could it pick up quite a bit more than people had expected, pushing yields higher, pushing the Fed's hands, and frankly, torpedoing some of the most popular calls in the equity market? Do you see a growing risk of that, given the pent-up demand, the pent-up savings that you just talked talked about. Yeah, hi, Lisa. This is like the question for markets this year. This is the defining question. And that's how quickly do yields rise and what does the Fed do about it? So the biggest risk to markets here is a spike in yields, not so much the gently rolling higher, but the spike. And it's very clear that inflation will look hotter simply because of calendar effects, because of base effects into the spring. So no one should get too concerned about that. What we've heard from the Fed is that they're willing um, for higher inflation prints in 2020 to kind of pass by. However, base effects can still seep into forward-looking inflation expectations. And so it's not just a wash. It's something to look out for. We think the risk for inflation is higher. I think the market will overlook what happens in the prints for the spring. As we move through the rest of the year, I think the risk is that inflation is higher than markets are currently expecting. Alicia, there's definitely a lot of concern about this, and this is something that we keep hearing about this idea of inflation picking up. How do stocks respond if you do get what you expect, which is higher than expected inflation? So what's going to happen as, as bond yields move higher is that you're going to compress some of the PEs, the price earning ratios, and that's gonna really affect some of the tech trades because, what we, because those are long duration assets with high, you know, high cash flowing assets. So higher yields will dent some of the PE exuberance on the tech trade, which is why we like cyclicals here. We think overall it's not going to be a dent in the market because the earnings power coming from the cyclicals should kind of overcome the lower PEs that the market is willing to pay overall. We think earnings are going higher, particularly in the second half of the year, and that earnings recovery is going to propel markets going forward. Not so much the PEs, it's the earnings recovery. Alicia Levine with us with BNY Mellon. 
We'd like to bring in right now is Mr. Biden attends church at uh, St. Matthew's Cathedral from Iona College. Gina Zeno joins us, and Rick Davis joins us from Stone Court um, as well. We now have the automobile leaving Blair House, and this is, of course, uh, Mr. and uh, Mrs. Biden uh, moving off to uh, church. Jeannie, the symbolism here that we have this morning, the differences here of this visit to a church versus the visit by the president to a church in the riot and storm of Black Lives Matter last summer, it's just as stark as anything in this nation. Yeah, absolutely. And and by design, I think, um, you know, the Biden incoming administration has really been focused on making a case for bipartisanship. This is somebody who spent his life in the Senate. He understands as he gets set to send a huge immigration bill to Congress, maybe as early as today, to sign over a dozen executive orders to try to combat the coronavirus with this almost $2 trillion bill. He understands he is going to need the support of Republicans with this Senate so narrowly divided. And as he is trying, I agree with Kevin, to use the the trip to the church symbolically, and he's going to be accompanied by members of the leadership on the Republican side to mm-hmm. make the case for bipartisanship, which we're going to hear an awful lot about unity today in his speech, I suspect, as well. Maybe there'll be some prayers in the Republican Party as they consider a new Senate and not a fracture, but a more fragile house. Rick Davis joins us now with his service to the gentleman from Arizona, Mr. McCain, over the years. Rick Davis, how does Senator McConnell pick up the pieces? What is the McConnell process is minority leader, even in the next weeks and certainly in the next months. Well, Tom, it's it's hard to conceive of that term, uh, Mitch McConnell as minority leader. Yes. Uh, but he's already sort of tipped his hat. He's speaking pretty freely these days, which is somewhat unusual. Uh, about his plans as minority leader. And he he did talk about the fact that in a divided Senate, uh, you're going to need to compromise. And I thought I would never live to hear the word compromise come out of Mitch McConnell's mouth. But I think this is the new Mitch McConnell. And I think he'll use opportunities to ensure that legislation that does get through the United States Senate has his mark on it. He knows he can't control the agenda now, but he can impact uh, the outcome of this legislation And so I think that'll be his top priority is just make sure that things don't get through the Senate that cause irreparable harm to the economy and to the policies of our nation. When Rick, Rick, when Tom talks about unity and the fractures that we've seen in the Republican Party, it raises a question of who Mitch McConnell is representing right now, given the fact that a majority of Republicans polled, according to a number of different polls, still support President Trump, do not think that he should have been, uh, been impeached or that he should resign. What do you make of that in terms of how it influences Mitch McConnell and his Republican Party as he charts his path forward? Well, Mitch McConnell still has office and office matters in these kinds of cases. So regardless of the public popularity uh, within the Republican Party that Donald Trump has, uh, Mitch McConnell actually gets to go to work tomorrow morning and do the nation's business. And so he will be uh, one of a couple of national leaders who are going to form the Republican Party outlook on policy and politics between now and the midterm elections, which is the next real check in the system. And highly unlikely that there'll be a Trump on a ticket uh, in 2022, but uh, Mitch McConnell will have a large cache of money and is currently recruiting candidates for uh, Senate races that are up in that period of time. So he's going to continue to be a very important mechanic 
of the Republican Party and a legislative strategist. And right now, uh, he is about all we've got as a leader in the Republican Party. Meanwhile, as we talk about fractures in the Republican Party, there certainly are fractures in the Democratic Party, Jeannie. And there's a question of how much Joe Biden will be able to bring together the left and center and right, frankly, of the Democratic Party in order to get through his policy. What is the unity like when it comes to the Democratic caucus? The unity we're seeing today is going to be really the height of the unity we will see going forward. It is going to be tough for Joe Biden to keep this large, particularly in the House, caucus together. We've already heard frustration in some quarters of the progressive wing in terms of his proposal on COVID relief, for instance, saying things like that almost $2 trillion bill doesn't go far enough. And of course, you look at the opposite side on the Republicans side and even moderate Democrats, they say it goes way too far. In other words, what does a $15 minimum wage have to do with battling the coronavirus? So Joe Biden is going to have his work cut out for him trying to keep the caucus together on the Democratic side and trying to please this really loud and energetic progressive wing of that party. Because he's going to have to do that and his focus is going to have to be trying to get to 60 in the Senate. And that means he's going to have to appeal to moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats. And that's not going to make the progressives happy. So all these bills we're seeing him talk about from immigration to COVID relief, I suspect we will see watered down versions of that if we see them get through the Senate at all. And yesterday in Congress, we got signals it's not going to be easy. People like Josh Hawley holding up the DHS uh, cabinet nomination, not fast tracking it. Chuck Grassley saying he's got concerns about the COVID relief bill, amongst other things, with the liberal components of that in there. So those are signs already before Joe Biden is even inaugurated that this is going to be a tough sort of line for him to walk here. Gina Zayino with us and also Rick Davis here. And again, uh, at the nine o'clock hour, the uh, Air Force One pulling away at Andrews Air Force Base, a president on his way uh, to Florida and outside the Cathedral of St. Matthew in Washington. We're waiting for Mr. Biden, I believe, to uh, enter the church and, of course, other worthies uh, attending as well. The church is one of the jewels of Washington. It is Lafarge at the turn of the 19th century. It is Roman. For those of you that know Boston, there's the church at Copley Square, which is much the same feeling, maybe a number of years earlier uh, than that. Rick Davis, you know, as, as we go to this hour, as the president flies away, it is a changing of the era. And what's so interesting to me, Rick Davis, there's a huge presumption with Biden at 78, that this is a one-term presidency. I believe in my life, I've never understood this was a one-term presidency as much as this moment. How, Rick Davis, does the assumption of a one-term presidency change the moment? It's a very good point, Tom. Uh, uh, Joe Biden, because of his age, is probably termed out uh, the day he gives his swearing in. So uh, it is something to remember. Uh, uh, Kamala Harris is a uh, uh, new vice president, as uh, has been remarked many times, uh, historic. Uh, and she is going to be seen as an heir apparent uh, to Joe Biden for uh, a presidential run in 2024. The question is, can Joe Biden 
uh, be relevant over the next two years in order to ensure that he doesn't start acting like a lame duck president. Uh, as we recall, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in the last term of uh, uh, Barack Obama's presidency, he was almost termed out uh, in the first year of his second term. Uh, people saw him no longer as the future. Uh, and so policy waned and legislative action uh, slowed down. Uh, Biden's got some momentum and he can ride it as long as he can. But the political realities are that he is right. in the future of the Democratic Party. Two of you, thank you so much. I know you'll be giving us guidance and wisdom through the day. We greatly appreciate it. Jeannie Zeno of Iona and Rick Davis as, as well. Joining us now, Henrietta Trace of Vader Partners, economic policy director. Henrietta, let's build on the words of Kevin. The biggest policy battle down in D.C. still to come. Where does it lie? I think the most interesting thing, and Kevin gave such a great roundup, is the reality that Senator Schumer is going to be controlling the Senate floor from here. So perhaps Senator Marco Rubio and others in the Republican conference want to hold out for the perfect. They may be able to make some real changes, but when push comes to shove, it's going to be Majority Leader Schumer that decides which bills go to the Senate floor, and they're going to have to vote against a direct payment to individuals, against unemployment insurance benefits at the federal level, against more vaccine and testing funding for state and local governments. And that's going to be something that they have to wear that they have not had to deal with under Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So I think that stark reality- We've got a big number, sparking. a big number, 1.9 trillion, Henrietta. And we've had a big conversation the last couple of weeks about how much that will have to come down. Have you got a base case yet? Yeah, my base case is that we probably end up at the very low end in the $750 billion range if they really try to get 60 votes and 10 of which would need to come from the Republican conference. At the high end, maybe $1.5 trillion. Um, I think that those negotiations will probably last until about mid-February, and then we'll have an understanding of whether Democrats are going to have to go it alone or continue trying to negotiate a bipartisan package. Um, so it's going to be a couple more weeks here. Henrietta, Tom Keene here, and good morning to you on this day of inauguration. Is the committee process broken forever? Uh, in the Senate, I don't think so. I mean, I, if that's what you're referring to, I, I think that the committees are, especially with the senators, there's a lot of seniority there. So, for instance, there's a lot of attention on Senator Bernie Sanders, who will be chairman or co-chair of the Senate Budget Committee. They're going to come with to an agreement on how to proceed. It may take a couple weeks to hash out, but there will be a path forward. They will divvy up committee assignments. There will be staff and budgets prepared for all of them. There will be a reconciliation bill, potentially even three, depending on who you talk to in the Democratic conference, and um, this this power-sharing agreement will get sorted. An interesting thing to keep your eye on is whether any of the senators decide to uh, leave either of their parties, become an independent, and caucus with the other side. Last time around, that's what happened. We could definitely see that again. Yesterday, we heard Janet Yellen in front of the Senate Banking Committee. We talked a lot about, or we heard a lot about, the potential for taxation. This seemed to be a concern that Republicans were talking about as they were saying, we need to pay for this somehow. Do you expect that later this year, we're going to start hearing more about taxation from the Democratic Party? I, the great question, Lisa. I, I don't think that the conversation about taxation is ever going to go away. Um, I assume that in the first House bill that gets rolled out as early as next Friday, there will be some taxation components in it. Um, certainly, there would be in a $4 trillion or $6 trillion reconciliation bill down the line to offset infrastructure spending. But what members talk about versus what's 
possible um, in terms of actually legislating and getting 51 votes are two very different conversations. I can't find you the votes for tax increases. If there are any odds, it would come in very specific streamlined components uh, applicable to very high net worth individuals or very specific income streams from very flush corporations. So the guilty tax, the tax on intangibles held overseas, um, the capital gains tax, those are conversations that could come up in the back half of this year. You'll probably see headline risk before then, but I don't anticipate that any of those tax rates will actually be implemented. If they are, there will be a phase in, uh, there will be a lag time, and 2023 is the earliest that ICD tax increases actually coming to fruition. In the meantime, do you actually see any true fiscal hawks left in Congress, or have they continued to remain extinct even as a Democrat takes office? Well, that's a good question. I think the Republicans are trying to get back there, but Democrats are not uh, really receiving that message right now. The biggest component of having Bernie Sanders as chairman of the uh, Senate Budget Committee is that he's going to be responsible for deciding what the appetite is for deficit spending, and his appetite is pretty unlimited. When you have Treasury Secretary nominee Janet Yellen coming in yesterday and saying, we think that now is the time to deficit spend, interest rates are historic lows, there's not a real concern. And again, having control of the Senate floor and re forcing Republicans and their fiscal conservative mantra to vote against these bills is much different than just avoiding these votes altogether. So I think fiscal conservative uh, might be something that we hear in the background, but for all intents and purposes, it's dead for the time being. And with a trays of Veda Partners, Henrietta, always fantastic to get you with us. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.